0: Let's just quickly dive into our text. Genesis chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. We, we kind of dealt with the first five verses last Sunday. We won't recap them. I encourage you, if you're new, if you, didn't, if you weren't with us, go back to the archive, listen to it. But we are going to get a bit of a running head start here. Uh, verse 1, now Adam knew Eve. They've been kicked out of the garden. We're told that Eve conceived and bore Cain means acquired, which is why she says, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but... He did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Verse 6, So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. You know, this really is kind of an incredible development in our travels through Genesis. Because two things are kind of happening here. This is the first time we see God outside of the garden. That God comes out of the garden, out of his realm. And what is he doing? He comes out of the garden to once again seek out another sinner. Now, Cain's sin is a bit different. Cain approached God, probably in a a bit of honesty, sincerity. He came to God with the fruit of his labor, hoping that God would accept his best, and yet God rejected it. Because it's not about our best. Our best will always fall short of the glory of God, that we're not saved, we're not given God's favor through our best, but instead through a sacrifice, which is why God accepted Abel in a sacrifice, because it was made in faith while he rejected Cain because it was made in pride. In essence, Cain represents religion, approaching God in my own effort, my own energy, my own merit, and yet God never respects it. He doesn't even acknowledge it. And yet in God's grace, he still comes out of the garden and he seeks out Cain. Cain's angry. His countenance has fallen. He's bummed out. He's perplexed. He's not sure why. God has accepted Abel, but has rejected him. I mean, is he not good enough? (laughs) No, he wasn't. So God says, why are you angry? Why are you angry? Now, as God did in the garden. God typically, when approaching a sinner, always likes asking questions. And note, the questions are not designed to ascertain information. It's not as though God didn't know why Cain was all bummed out, why his countenance had fallen. Instead, the question given by God is designed to stir something within Cain. Mainly, an attitude of repentance. That in this moment, Cain would express himself, communicate his desires, communicate his disappointments, that a dialogue could begin. Also note that God provides Cain a very simple exhortation. We're told, if you do well will you not be accepted? Now, that might appear a bit confusing because, once again, this is not about doing. It's about being. It's not about our works. It's about God's favor. The way that this is translated from the Hebrew is a little off. This, if you do well. The better translation, as a matter of fact, you can find other versions that actually have it represented in such a way. The better translated is is literally, if you offer correctly, will you not be accepted? And once again, tying it in context to the fact that his offering was not right and thus it was rejected. So God says, if if you offer correctly, will you not be accepted? Why are you bummed out? There's a simple remedy to this. You see, God is making an appeal for Cain to repent of his religious pride and humbly come and offer a correct sacrifice. Place his faith and an atoning sacrifice. And yet, also notice that with his appeal also came a warning. Because of Cain's festering anger, God tells him, if you do not offer well, sin lies at the door. If you offer well, I'll accept you. It's all good. If you don't, well, sin. Sin is lying at the door. This word, Lies. The Hebrew word. It it, it describes an animal that's ready to pounce. A lion or a tiger in the crouched position, ready to strike. God is warning Cain that this sin, this sin stirring in his heart, this sin of pride, as it had done with Lucifer, would destroy him. It would pounce and ruin him if it was allowed to continue unabated. It's been said, I like this quote, that sin fascinates before it assassinates. Deal with sin, or there's a truth, that sin will deal with you. Now Cain, verse eight, talked with Abel, his brother. And it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Please notice, before we actually get to the substance of this, that we don't know how much time transpired, how much time existed between God's appeal to Cain in verses 6 and 7 and the conversation that he eventually has with his brother Abel in verse 8. Beyond this, we're not even told how much time lapsed between the conversation Cain has with Abel and his murderous deed. All we know is he has a conversation and it came to pass. There's no timeline. It's not determined when they were in the field that Cain killed his brother. What I do find interesting is what we're told eventually pushes Cain over the edge. Like what moved his anger with God from simply residing in his heart to the murderous actions of his hands. Aside from the fact that there is no mention here of Cain ever responding to God's question, to God's appeal, or even to God's warning. What tips him off? It's a conversation that he has with Abel. I wonder what they talked about. I know it's pure speculation, but my guess in context is that Abel was probably reiterating the same warning, the same appeal, communicating it even with the same heart as God. Cain, why are you resisting this? It's not that complicated. Don't take it personally. We've all sinned and fallen short. We're all damned. And yet God wants us to come and approach him with just an offering, a sacrifice, an innocence. What a compelling thought that Abel, who we're told is a righteous man by Jesus, a man of faith, out of love for his brother, is literally witnessing to this man he cares so much about. He's sharing his faith with his brother. Sadly, when a man rejects the truth, he's also likely to silence the messenger. And this is what we see here. Understand Cain was not angry with Abel and no context. In no way in our passage are we told that. Cain is instead, his countenance fell. He's upset. Why? Because God rejected what he had offered. His anger is not with his little bro. His anger is with God. And yet in the process of this conversation where his brother is sharing his faith, reiterating these appeals, Cain's had enough and he rises up and he kills his brother. How ironic that the first murder was a religious murder. How many have been killed in the name of religion ever since? And his anger over God's rejection of his best works, his refusal to repent in spite of God's appeal, and probably in light of the fact that that, that Abel was enjoying God's unmerited favor, God's blessings, he kills, he rose up. And kills Abel, understand it's not as though Cain just lost it, like that this was a temporary uh, lapse of judgment that he fleshed out as if his temper got the best of him. You see in first John chapter three verse twelve we're told that Cain slew his brother, and in the Greek this word slew it literally means that Cain slit the throat of his brother Abel. Like, consider that particular act. Taking his brother and running that blade across his brother's throat. I mean, the act itself, it's brutal. It's barbaric. It's bloody. It's deeply personal. Consider that upon the birth of Seth, whose lineage the promised Savior would descend. We'll see this at the end of the chapter. Eve makes an interesting comment. She says, for God, upon the birth of Seth, has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel. It appears that in some way, Eve had come to see Abel as either being God's promised Savior, or at least the one in which the Savior would descend. The Savior would come. Now, now, keep in mind, follow me here. I believe that what Cain is doing here, it's not just, it's anger. It's not just he's lashing out. It's not just that he lost it. It's not just that he had a hot head, a hot temper. He's like, oh, snap. I shouldn't have done that. This is thought out. This is premeditated. He takes a knife and he cuts his brother's throat. Personally, I think Cain's murder of Abel was satanically motivated. As a matter of fact, it would explain why in the same 1 John 3 passage, Cain is described as being, quote, of the wicked one. It could have been that Cain, whose offer had been rejected by God, killed Abel in an attempt of making sure everyone else would be forced to share the same fate as he. That maybe Cain saw Abel, the messianic line, while Cain wasn't the savior, maybe he was Abel or at least the Messiah would come through Abel and Cain saying, you're rejecting me? Okay, how about this? And he takes that savior and he executes him. He kills him, letting the world know, if I'm not accepted, none of you can be. That maybe this was the first satanic attempt to cut off the messianic line by killing Abel. Well, we're told in verse nine, that the Lord said to Cain, where is your, where's Abel, your brother? So Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And God said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now, once again, it's amazing that God, again, comes to Cain, how? With a question. A question. Where is Abel? Like, the implications are that God, in his grace, is still giving Cain, the murderer now, an opportunity to repent and come back into God's favor. Like, and yet, Cain, his response, what is it? He first lies to God. He says, my brother, I don't know, am I his keeper, right? Like, he lies, and he smarts off. Like, he knew exactly where his brother was. He knew exactly what had happened to his brother. More than likely, he knew God was aware as well. Like, the irony of this statement, am I my brother's keeper, is that he was. Like, that he was called to be his brother's keeper. That we're all to be others centric, that we're supposed to be preferring the needs of others above ourselves. The problem with Cain is that he wasn't his brother's keeper. He was his brother's murderer. He was selfish. Look at God's response in verse 11. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. Now, because of Cain's sin, the fact that he refused to repent, three consequences are going to result, will be manifested in his life. First, did you notice that Cain's life is totally ruined now? Like it's ruined. While he had been, and he's first introduced to us as a tiller of the earth one that was pretty good at the craft. Now, the earth, according to this curse, would no longer yield for Cain. God's making it sure he knew that he had no favor. This result, this consequence, is the most natural for his sin. That what he made his living doing, what his pride was based in, what his life revolved around, was now taken from him. I hope you know that sinful behavior, unrepentant sin, will never make your life better. The lie of the enemy is that it will, but it won't. It never will. In actuality, sin will only make things worse by robbing you of the very life that God created for you. To this point, Jesus said, in John chapter 10, verse 10, he says, the thief... What does the thief do? What's his intention? It's to steal and to kill and to destroy you. Like Satan pulls no punches right there. His intentions for you are clear. His enticement into rebellion and to sin, it's clear. It's not to benefit you and promote you and help you enjoy and get the most out of life. It's to steal, to rob, and to destroy you. But then what does Jesus say in the same passage? He says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Will you believe that? You know, the truth is that I've never met a soul. I'm not an old man. I'm 33. In my days, I've never run across an individual, whether young, whether old, whether a child, whether a senior, who has ever When evaluating the choices that they've made in life, end up regretting obeying God. Man, you know what? I was a young man and I made the decision to reject the things of the world. I made a decision to follow Jesus. And man, that was the worst decision I've ever made. I've never run across a person like that. I've never run across a young man who gets back from his honeymoon and he says, you know what? I kept myself pure. I didn't have sex before marriage. I, I, I retained my innocence. So did so did my wife. And that honeymoon night was terrible. I am so bummed out that I didn't get a bunch of practice beforehand. I've never met anyone. Now I, I have I have had conversations with fellas that were like, man why didn't I listen to the Lord? Why wasn't I obedient? You know, we regret. Deathbed regrets are always based in our disobedience to God. They're never based in our obedience. Cain's life would be ruined. And why would it be ruined? Because he refused to repent of his sin and walk in the light also notice that Cain would forever be a fugitive. A fugitive. Because of his actions and his refusal to repent, Cain would always be on the run. He wouldn't be on the run from, from the one-armed man. That was a Harrison Ford reference. Anyone? The fugitive? Come on, people. That was a good movie. Anyway, he's on the run Forever. Forever he will be a fugitive. You can imagine that he would live his life in fear of retribution, of someone taking vengeance for Abel. But I also imagine that is, and it's always the case with sin, isn't it? That Cain would also be running from the weight of his own conscience. Because he refused to repent of his sin, Because he chose to continue in his sin. That there was a weight, this naggingness in the back of his conscience that he could never shake, that he would always be running from. Just because you're unwilling to deal with your sin doesn't alleviate you from an inner guilt caused by your sin. You can ignore it, rationalize it, justify it, normalize it. You can even embrace your sin. But you will always be running from the knowledge that you're acting against the will of God. That the life you've chosen stands in opposition to the one he intended. You will always be on the run. To this point, C.S. Lewis writes, we have a strange illusion that mere time cancels sin. But mere time does nothing, either to the fact or to the guilt of a sin. Thirdly, if you notice from our text, in addition to being a fugitive and his life being ruined, Cain would now live as a vagabond. It's kind of a cool word, a vagabond. Terrible implications. As a consequence of his actions, Cain would now be forced to flee his home. He couldn't go back. And despite his best attempts, as we'll see in a moment, of creating a new one, Cain would always long for a home that he had intentionally left. The word vagabond means, literally, one who wanders. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, King Solomon, he explains that since God has put eternity in our hearts, that every human heart has this sense of eternity. That there's an awareness of our own mortality, but the reality of an afterlife. That apart from God, because we have this sense of eternity coming, humanity is only left to wonder throughout a fallen world, seeking to be satisfied by things that can and never will satisfy. Apart from God, in a fallen world, you are left to wonder. Not just to wonder what comes, but to wonder in the sense that your heart longs within this world for things to satisfy that never can, never will, apart from God. Cain, is he better off? No. His life is utterly ruined. The things he held dear were stripped. He's a fugitive, running from the weight of this conscience, but he's wandering. Wandering because Cain refused to repent, his life is ruined, he's running from his conscience, and he would never, ever, ever find rest. Although the same results manifest in our lives when we stubbornly refuse to repent of our sins, I hope you know, it doesn't have to be that way. Like this morning, there's a warning Why are you angry? Why are you angry with God? There's an appeal. Won't you repent? God asks nothing of you, nothing from you, just faith in Jesus. That God wants to give you favor and fill you you with life, that and that more abundantly, right? The simple question is will you repent? Will you come to the cross? Accept what he did on your behalf. You know, it's interesting that in Hebrews chapter 4, we're given this promise that through Jesus' work on the cross, we are now able, able, to enter his rest. Restlessness is a characteristic of the wandering soul, not, not the one that was lost, but now has been found. The one that Jesus came to save. While sin causes wandering and can prove exhausting. In Jesus, my appeal this morning. In Jesus, you can find rest. Knowing what? That your sin has been forgiven and God's favor bestowed. Well, Cain said in verse 13 to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. How telling it is that while Cain knows the full and ultimate consequences of his sin, which are what? That he is now eternally separated from God. He says it, you have driven me out. I shall be hidden from your face. What's his most pressing concern? himself. His most pressing concern is someone robbing him of this new life he's made for himself. You see, Cain, he doesn't care about his relationship with God. He cares not about repentance, nor is there a concern for the people his actions have harmed. No mention of Adam, no mention of Eve, no mention of the heartbreak he would have caused. The only thing Cain seems concerned about is how this punishment given by God will negatively affect his life moving forward. Look again at verses 13 and 14. Notice, I, me, I, I, me, me. The man is utterly self-consumed. As is typically the man or woman resisting God's grace and choosing instead to walk in sin. So verse 15, the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. In order to protect Cain's life from any type of retribution that might be dulled out on behalf of Abel, God is clear right here. Anyone who kills Cain, that vengeance, presumably the vengeance of God, would be taken sevenfold. It's kind of as though God is telling Cain, right? Oh, you want this life? this life apart from me, this life in sin, this life apart from my presence, this life in the world. Oh, you want it? You're just, you're worried that that life might get robbed from you. I'm going to ensure that you get to experience the fullness of it. Go out, knock yourself out, have fun. Here you go. Here's this mark. No one can, if someone kills you, vengeance sevenfold. Now I have no idea, no clue what is meant by the Lord set a mark on Cain. Like there is no doubt in the Hebrew that this word mark does indeed denote some type of physical marker, a physical sign, something that could be seen visually. And while I can say I have no idea what the mark is, I can tell you with certainty what it isn't. I can tell you up front that there is zero zip, zilch, nada, no, no, justification at all that in placing a mark on Cain, that as some in times past have presumed that God is here making Cain a black man. There is no scriptural justification at all for that conclusion from this text. Now, what the mark is, I have no clue, but it is quite a leap to say that God here is cursing Cain by making him into a black man versus the rest of the world who happens to be white. That's ludicrous. Moving on. Regardless, I kind of felt like I had to say that from this text. We are in the South. This has been brought up. Moving on. What is fascinating about our passage is that God, he not only shows a measure of mercy to Cain, but do you notice what he, what he does here? I think it's, it's really interesting. God establishes a law. He sets up a law. And this law is designed to deal with man's sinful condition. Now, why is this unique or important? Although the command given by God in in the garden, that command to Adam, you shall not eat of the fruit. It was a command. That command was designed to do what? What? It was designed to preserve man's relationship with his creator. However, in this instance, God is now establishing a law with the intention of doing something else, preserving and maintaining order amongst fallen, sinful man. Law has no bearing in regards to my relationship with God, but it does have a practical benefit in regards to keeping order amongst a sinful society. And keep in mind, There are always and only two forms of law, according to Scripture. There is the letter of the law, designed to deal with sinful man. But we also see that there is the law of the Spirit, totally different law, reserved not for sinful man, but for righteous man. Because the first, the letter of the law, was designed to curtail man's behavior, a behavior warped by sin, those who have now been made righteous by Jesus, brought under the power of the Holy Spirit, we no longer have a need for a law to curtail our behavior because we have the Spirit of God doing that for us. We no longer need the restrictions of the law, not because these restrictions aren't warranted, or don't have a place. But we don't need the restrictions. Why? We've been set free from the law because we have the Holy Spirit living within us, that we've been transformed, that I don't need a law to tell me what I need to do. Why? Because I have the Spirit helping me do what I need to do. It's a different way of thinking. Romans chapter 7, verse 6, Paul writes, We have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that, we should reserve, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. We have the spirit. We walk in Christ. We no longer need such a law. Now, before we transition, it should be pointed out the significance of a phrase that we pass through, but we're going to get to it now. Fascinating phrase. God comes to Cain. What does he say? He says, The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. This is the first mention of blood in the entire Bible. And, And note, while the blood of an innocent sacrifice offered in faith could have served to atone for Cain's sin because of his rebellion and refusal to repent, the blood of this new innocent sacrifice, his brother Abel, would now serve to condemn Cain forever. Why? For his sin. Think about it this way. What's being said as a precedent that'll carry its way through scripture is that the blood of the sacrifice will do one of two things for every person. It will either atone, if it's seen in faith, or it condemns. The, The voice of your brother's blood cries out. C.H. McIntosh, he he observes, Abel's blood cries out for justice, but Christ's blood speaks of justice satisfied on the cross. Abel's blood declared Cain's guilt, made him a wanderer, but Christ's blood spoke of grace and forgiveness and reconciles believing sinners to God. I love that. Verse 16, so Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod in the east of Eden. And Cain knew knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. And Cain built a city called the name of the city after his son Enoch. Now, before we continue, it's important to address a common question that always happens to surface when we get to this particular text. and That's the question of where in the world, literally, where in the world, did Cain... Get his wife. The answer? His wife is either his sister or his niece. It's one or the other. Now, though incestuous relationships are taboo, unless you happen to be a Game of Thrones character, and that's a whole other topic. (laughs) And they're even outlawed in our modern society because of the social stigma and the reality that there are genetic birth defects that always result. Such negative perceptions and consequences have not always existed in times past. It's really only logical that in the beginning it was common and even necessary that brothers would marry sisters, half sisters, nieces, etc. And because of the the original complexity and purity of the genetic code, negative mutations would not have occurred. Now, keep in mind that this practice continued all the way up until Leviticus 18, verse 6, when God specifically banned it. And why? Because at that point, the genetic gene pool has diluted to the point that such results would occur, would happen. We'll even see that Abraham married Sarah. But who was Sarah? Sarah. Sarah was actually his half-sister. So we see these things happen. Where did Cain get his wife? Either his sister or his niece. Now what's important to consider before you're totally grossed out by that is that since Cain immediately, we're told, builds a city after the birth of his first son, Enoch, it follows that the human population of the earth grew rapidly and was quickly civilized, consider just a few points, a few facts. Aside from not being given any timelines in the last two chapters, and we've pointed that out as we've worked our way through the text, we have no idea here how much time may have transpired between Cain leaving the presence of the Lord and when he knew his wife. Additionally, while Cain was the firstborn, Abel the second with Seth coming after Abel's death, it's highly likely that Adam and Eve have had many more children not mentioned in the Bible who were, have been born between Abel and Seth. Seth is significant because he's born after Abel's death, but there's nothing in the text that tells us they didn't have many more children after Abel before Seth. As a matter of fact, to this point, Jewish historian Josephus, He writes that Adam and Eve actually had 56 children in totality, 33 sons and 23 daughters. Lamech, who we'll see later on, had 77 children. He needed two wives to do that. (laughs) One woman wasn't doing all that. Now... Using even conservative population growth formulas, and and you can do some research on your own, it's all fascinating, but many biblical scholars believe that it's entirely likely that when Cain leaves the presence of the Lord, when he finds his wife, when he marries her, when he has a son, when he builds a city, when all of that goes down, that using population growth models, that at that juncture, there are upwards of 120,000 people alive on the earth. So yes, this was no doubt a niece, but how many people were moved? There's a lot of people being born and having babies and having more babies. Like on a side note, using the genealogical records that we'll see in the next chapter, the population of the earth, when the flood occurred, which was 1,656 years after Adam was kicked out of the garden. Models say that the population of the earth during Noah's flood could have been identical to what it is today. Now, it could have been drastically less. The truth is we don't know because the text doesn't tell us. But using simple models, even assuming that a normal couple would have 10 children you can easily get to six to seven billion people. Regardless, don't miss here the key line in our text. We're told Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. That's important. Here is a man who, like his parents, rebelled against God. And yet, in contrast to his parents... Cain refuses to repent. He rejects God's grace. He doubles down in his rebellion and he intentionally heads out into the world uninterested about the things of God. Though we're told Cain eventually dwells in the land of Nod. Interesting that Nod means unrest or wandering. What is he immediately said about doing? Oh, you're going to rob me? I'm going to be a fugitive. I'm going to be a vagabond. I'm going to be a wanderer. Oh, really, God? He goes out and he seeks to create in a world apart from God, a life, a family, and a home. We'll see this. J. Vernon McGee said this of Cain. He was radically corrupt, fundamentally wrong. And all he wanted was to get out of the presence of God and lose himself in the world and its pursuits. Now we're going to seek to explain the rest of this chapter. I, I'm kind of an analytical individual. I like to think, why in the world are we, are we given now this genealogy of Cain when all of these people die in a flood? But I think that there's a point to it. Let's just read the next several verses. To Enoch was born Ired. Ired begot Mahuel, and Mahuel begot Matthewshel, and Methushel Matthew begot Lamech. I did pretty good there, didn't I? Don't fact check it, I'm probably terribly wrong, but I just approached it with confidence. That's what I was going for. Well, we're told, Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the second, Zila. And be glad they didn't add God to the front of her name because she would have been Godzilla. <laughs> it was there, it was low-hanging fruit. I had to take that. I had to take it, sorry. Well, Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the harp and the flute. As for Zillah, she bore Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron, and, his sis- and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. Uh fellas, try that one day going home. Listen, Jessica, to the voice of... Z- <laughs> like just not going to work. <laughs> she look at me like I'm out of my mind. But he says, this is his pronouncement, for I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech, the dude loves talking in the third person, seventy-sevenfold. Now, every descendant of Cain, everyone we just read about, spoiler alert, they die in the flood. And yet Moses here provides these seven generations of Cain's heritage, I believe, with the specific intention of getting us to Lamech, this man Lamech. And he does this for a reason. And This is the best I can come up with. While Cain built a city apart from the influence of God. That's his whole point, right? I'm going to leave your presence. I'm going into the world. I don't need you. I'm going to make a life for myself apart from you. It would be Lamech and these three sons who would carry Cain's pursuit of a godless society out to its logical end. Like within these verses, three characteristics emerge of such a society. First, this godless society was progressive. Progressive. And instead of divine intervention yielding a spiritual regeneration in the hearts of men, which brings about transformation, this society adopted the philosophy of progressivism. Let me give you a definition of progressivism. Progressivism asserts that, quote, advancements in science, technology, economic development, and social organization are essential, and note, To improving the human condition. It's not regeneration, it's not transformation, it's not the indwelling spirit of God. It's man setting about doing things to fix what only God can. Philosopher Immanuel Kant identified progressivism as being a movement away from barbarism towards civilization. Within this city, Founded by a man who specifically wanted a world without God, and one that in turn he didn't want God's involvement. We see now Lamech and his three sons engaging in several pursuits designed to do what? To better society apart from God. Jabel developed industry. Jubal instituted the arts, specifically wind uh, and stringed instruments. Tubal Cain created metalworking. Understand. While being progressive is not in and of itself a bad thing, sadly, we live in a culture that celebrates progressive ideas over traditional ones without ever considering to what direction we're actually progressing towards. Simply being progressive is not the end game, especially when the progress is aimed at carrying us further and further away from God. It's been said a wise man always considers why a fence was built in the first place before he extends the energy to tear it down. Traditional ideas exist for important reasons. Now, in the case of this first society that had abandoned God's involvement, the the development of these incredible advancements were specifically designed to facilitate their independence from God's provision, life apart from God. Now, none of these things were bad in and of themselves. Like music is not bad. Metalworking is not bad. Industry development is not bad. These things can be a benefit, but the purpose behind them was bent. Like what was wrong here is that their ingenuity was intentionally designed to create a dynamic whereby their culture, their society had no need for God. I think it's important Christians always remember that our chief aim should not be focused on creating a better society for man on a fallen earth. Instead, our primary pursuit should be seeing sinful men saved for the kingdom of heaven. The goal, our goal, while we can be involved in our society and, and, and desire to see the betterment of our society and we can be engaged in things, our goal, our lasting goal, our primary goal should never be improving the conditions for the wanderer, but instead to see the wanderer ultimately come home. Secondly, notice this godless society. What else do they do? This is interesting to me. But they, they redefined the institution of marriage. Notice it's Lamech, who in his perversion and rebellion does another first here. We're told he took for himself two wives. Now, God had been clear even before the fall that his blueprint for marriage necessitated one man, one woman, monogamy, and a covenantal relationship for life. Yet Lamech here takes it upon himself to redefine an institution God had created by now normalizing polygamy. One man and two women would become culturally accepted. Like, understand, it is only logical that a godless society would ultimately reject God's definition of the most important of all human relationships. You see, if there is no God weighing in on such matters, then the decision of whom to love or marry will and should be left up to the perspective of each individual free of the judgment of anyone else. It's only logical that a godless society would now seek to define marriage on their own apart from God. Notice thirdly, this godless society assumed the right to establish their own law. Apparently, in this declaration to his wives, Lamech admits to killing a man in the act of self-defense. What's interesting is that in response to what he's determined to be a justifiable act, Lamech then proceeds to make a moral equivalency to the act of God and his handling of Cain, being avenged sevenfold. Lamech now declares that if Cain, in killing Abel and premeditated murder, would demand the vi- vengeance of God sevenfold, now me, because it was an, an, an innocent, justifiable act, vengeance should be taken out, carried forth, 77-fold. And may, what makes this detail significant is that while God initially instituted a law to address interactions, the interactions of sinful man and his handling of Cain, within this godless society, Lamech, a man, now assumes the position of forming law. Please understand, when the idea of a moral, absolute lawgiver is abandoned, there's no longer any basis for moral absolutes. Laws are now free to reflect the whims of society, not to protect against the whims of society, as God instituted. How interesting that in our country today, we see the same three characteristics of a godless society a country that at one point in time was considered to be one nation under whom? Under God. But in more recent times has increasingly rejected his influence. In America, humanistic progressivism has replaced divine revelation as the remedy for the human condition, the societal Ls. In his desire to be inclusive... Man's perversions are now called love as the parameters for marriage have been expanded beyond those initially determined by a God who was clearly intolerant. Ultimately, within our society, the basic underpinning of law is not determined by God, but is now based upon the determinate consensus of immoral man versus the absolute moral lawgiver. It's been said concerning such a society. When God's remedy to cleanse is rejected, man's efforts to improve are put in its place. Sure, we do live in an incredible country, one of the most incredible societies the world has ever seen with awesome privileges of worship to follow after God. But it is undeniable that there are spiritual forces seeking to move our country further and further away from the involvement and the influence of Almighty God. And it's not just Democrats, it's also Republicans. It's not just Republicans, it's also Democrats, that there is an undercurrent taking us from Almighty. And yet, while many consider social advancements like these as progress, it is a reality that the further and further you move away from the influence of God, the more wicked and more vile a society becomes. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but in Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6, we're given God's evaluation of such a society. We're told the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart, And what came after that evaluation? Judgment. This is why in Jude 1, verse 11, we're warned. You and I are warned. Woe to them. For what purpose? For they have gone in the way of Cain. Keep in mind how all this began. One man chose to make a life for himself apart from God. Because he was unwilling to admit he needed a savior, he rejected God's grace and refused to repent of his sin. And yet the interesting reality of the story of Cain and one we should all consider is that God not only allowed Cain to create such an existence in this life, but he also allowed that same existence to continue into an afterlife. You want a life apart from me? Knock yourself out. God allows it. God will never force himself upon a human soul He'll never save without a request to do so. He'll never make a person repent of sin and live in his presence. While Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, the warning for us is that God allowed him to do so. This morning, if you want to make for yourself a life free from the influence and the involvement of God, you have this freedom. Just remember three realities. One, a life apart from God is characterized by wonder, wondering and emptiness. Two, the further you progress away from God, the darker, more evil this world becomes. And third, God's future judgment is inescapable and inevitable. And yet, while the world was progressing away from God, not all men had been swept up in this tide. As we'll see next Sunday, God still had a remnant, a remnant of the faithful within this dark world that he had called to be a witness of a coming Savior. To proclaim that there was a coming judgment, but to provide hope that God had a remedy.